Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all that bad relationship advice using science. Science. (laughs) I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods from UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. Today we're going to break down an academic article, Repartnering Following Gray Divorce, The Roles of Resources and Constraints for Women and Men. Also, we'll discuss advice um, that we found on the interwebs, specifically Twitter and that sweet, sweet Instagram. That's what the kids are calling it. What? But before we get to all of that wonderful content, um, how's everybody doing? Good. I had a great Thanksgiving in Florida, which was amazing. West Palm Beach oh. for a week was really Ooh. tough to sit out by a <laughs> pool, sit out by a beach, have people oh make gosh. Thanksgiving dinner, and all I had to do was the dishes. So it was pretty great. What is your life? It's pretty good. Shout out to Julie Keenan if you're listening. That's my shout out, Julie Keenan. Nice shout out. <laughs> Solid. But no, it was beautiful. We had a lot of fun, a lot of good times. Can't complain. Sounds amazing. Did you did you have some nice drinks? Um, yeah. Well, just lots of wine. Yeah, that's a good one. It's a good good old standard. I like it a yeah. lot. Yeah, had some good cocktails here and there, but mostly just good wine. Some Fantastic. really good turkey too. Yum! Gobble gobble, bitches. <laughs> How are you doing, Woods? Pretty good. We had family here for the full week, so my uh, middle brother. You sound somewhat weary no it, i am i am the a little tired but more like okay. i'm weary to go back into the work week um, Ugh, i know because it was a pretty delightful uh many days off from work and yeah. so my parents were here and my middle brother and his partner and so we had a very full week of spending most of every day together and cooking and doing a lot of shopping and drinking and playing games and so it was a lot of fun fantastic I I love I love that I was just talking to my daughter about I said I just don't want to go back to work tomorrow she kind of looked at me she's six probably shouldn't be unloading on a (laughs) six-year-old she was like why not I was like I just have had such a good time relaxing and hanging out with you guys um she's like okay (laughs) Oh my god. Which is the most appropriate response oh ever. Um, but we had a really great time. It was very relaxing. Didn't have to go to work, no school, mm. not the entire week, mm. like Woods Queen of Sheba over here. Uh, we had you um, Iowa had the whole week off too. Oh, yeah, What's you had the whole week off too. What's going on, Tennessee? I only had Thursday and Friday off. Maybe Wednesday too. I mean I took Wednesday, Thursday, Friday off. I'm just not really sure if I was supposed to. Anyway. Um <laughs> so uh, we had a particularly fun Thanksgiving. It was just um, the the close fam here. And then on Saturday, we do this thing called Leftover Thanksgiving, mm. where we invite all of our friends locally who had Thanksgiving with their families to everybody bring over their leftovers. Love it. And we all eat uh, various people's Thanksgiving. Love it. So... It's like piece together Thanksgiving. It's so much fun. You're not allowed to cook anything. You're only allowed to warm How things up. How clever! And people uh, come over and have so much, so much diversity of Thanksgiving. It was fantastic. That's awesome. During the leftover Thanksgiving, we had three different stuffings, mm. and it was just fantastic because stuffing is my favorite. Mm-hmm. It's so so freaking delicious. <laughs> Another so. Patricia conversation around food, huh? <laughs> Listen, I can't disappoint the uh, avid listeners who are like, oh, what is PR going to say about food this week? Listen, I'm here for stuffing. Um, cornbread, sauce. I just don't really know all the different types of stuffing. I just know I like them all, mm-hmm. um, especially if you put some cranberry sauce on it. Mm-hmm. Man. So that was absolutely delightful on Saturday. I got to have leftover Thanksgiving. I'm one of those avid listeners. Like I should be full and not want to hear about food right now. And I'm totally down for you describing everything that you've eaten. (laughs) And then I put it into my mouth and I chewed. Is that what you're into? Is that what you wanted, Sarah? Was that, was that? Gravy. Go to the gravy. (laughs) 
Yes, the gravy, the cranberry, put, the, put it on the cranberry, put it on the cranberry. Cool, good to know. Okay, well, you know, to each their own. Well, on that note, let's get started. First, we're going to move to the poppin' culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and our family. But a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. So for this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in our wonderful pop culture that influences our lives and how we view relationships. So Jacob, what do you got for us this week? All right, are we ready for Temptation Island deep dive number two? Are we? We better be. Yes, yeah. Were we ready for yes, the first? Yeah. I don't remember. Uh, like, <laughs> we're not going to follow up with that couple, but you should. It, it was so. Casey is. He is not a good human being. He's just oh, not. Oh, bless it. Just not. But today, <laughs> I want to talk about potentially a worse human being. <laughs> <laughs> so today, we're going to talk about. David and Kate. So let's read a little bit about their bio, and then I will talk to you about their journey on Temptation Mm. Island. I love journeys. All right, here we go. Rival sales executives, quickly turned red-hot lovers, Kate and David, (laughs) have been in a relationship and living together for three years. They both. I love the voice that you're using here, Jacob. I can't even make eye contact. Might be my favorite part. (laughs) Go on, go on. They both have been faithful to each other throughout their relationships. However, their pasts include dark bouts of infidelity, so smoldering. Mistrust is always right below the surface for these two as they contemplate a life together. Kate is a few years older than David and is eager to begin the next chapter, marriage, kids, family life, etc. However, David, despite how much he loves Kate, has some walls up and is hesitant to be vulnerable and take the massive next step into the future. Will the stay on Temptation Island get them on the same page before the book closes on their relationship? Yeah, I mean, just... (laughs) Riveting. Absolutely the best thing for their relationship. Definitely sounds like it's Temptation Island. So good, good first step there, uh, David and Kate, or whatever your name is. The funny thing, if... If you want to go on usanetwork.com slash Temptation Island, you can actually track each couple and they show little clips of them. And at the bottom on the bar, like you can go through each episode and it'll say what happened. So you see episode one, they're really scared to separate. Episode two, they start making connections. And then um, my favorite clip is from episode three where it has a little circle and you hover over it and it says, David has a threesome. (laughs) okay so and that's not all sorry again spoilers here so david ends up basically hooking up with two women and then two episodes later hooking up with a totally different woman who he says hey i think i could be with you forever maybe i should move out to los angeles but at the same time is always hesitant because he still loves kate so what you see David do throughout his journey is basically not have his behaviors line up with what he's saying. Right. And I think this is really an example of somebody not knowing how to break up with somebody. Knowing Ooh. how to end a relationship, yes. a friendship, is really important part of relationships. As you are going through the process of navigating who you want to be with, Learning how to break up is really important. And David just can't do it. Here he is talking to this woman he now says he could really see himself spending life with, whose name is Tanita. Um, But at the same time, he'll go on and say like, oh, I think maybe things with Kate and I are still going to be okay. While he's hooked up with three women during like four episodes of five episodes of Temptation Island. So David just doesn't really know, actually, Mark Wahlberg, you know, Mark Wahlberg, D-list actor, not Mark Wahlberg, (laughs) who is the host, Mark Wahlberg. uh, He goes on and says, David, your actions are just not lining up with your behaviors because David doesn't know how to end a relationship. He doesn't know how to have the conversation where he says, I love you and this is not working. And we need to move on. I mean, he came to Temptation Mm -hmm. Island to break up with Kate, right? Right. He came there to break up, but he's not not able to do that. 
Uh, I don't know if this has ever happened to any of y'all in y'all's practice, but have you ever had people who do, maybe we've talked about this on the podcast before, drop-off therapy, maybe. you know, where they come, a couple oh. comes in and said, one partner finally says, well, I'm out, take care of all this for me, I don't really want to do this, and then as the therapist, you're kind of helping the other person navigate the breakup. I think that's what David tried to do on Temptation Island. Oh, he tried to, tried to do a Temptation Island breakup. Yeah, like, oh, we'll go to Temptation Island, and she'll find somebody else, and I'll find somebody else, and then we can just move on. But right. really, the healthy and meaningful way to do that is to have this conversation of, hey, Absolutely. for me, this relationship is not working. I need to move forward. And he hasn't learned that skill yet and desperately needs to. And I think it's really important to be able to do not only in relationships, uh, like romantic relationships, but also in some adult friendships. Right. Sometimes you just have friendships that are really toxic and you shouldn't hang on to them. And so knowing how to have those conversations and remove yourself from some of those relationships that aren't working is really important. Instead of going on Temptation Island, <laughs> hooking up right. with two women drunkenly and then telling another one you're basically falling in love with her two episodes later and looking like a total idiot on Temptation right. Island, much easier to learn the skill of how to break up with someone. I would also be very fascinated about this definition or their definition of love. Like, it seems like he keeps on using this term, I love her, I love her, I love her to multiple people. But I'm curious as to what he thinks that means or what it means to him or if it's just something that you're supposed to say because you see that a lot. Like you're just supposed to say you love the person that you're with them or I love them, but I don't like them is something you hear hear a lot or or, or just diving into what that term means to people. I, I think for David, it's love is what he feels in the moment. Mm. Right. I love feeling like I'm going to hook up with these two women at the same time right now. I love the feeling of this attractive woman being really into me. And it's more of like this uh, ethereal. I feel love in this moment. So I'm going to say I'm in love with this person or I see this person. And since I have a history, I'm going to say I'm in love with this person right. as opposed can't to be with the one you love. <laughs> Love the one you're with. <laughs> yeah, and I think that he just, I think, I mean, I can't be in David's head, and I am total, like, armchair quarterbacking this, but I kind of love it. <laughs> I, I get the sense that he doesn't. We love it, too. He just doesn't know how to differentiate what he's feeling in the moment to the sense of commitment, continuity, sacrifice, you know, growth that love kind of requires. Right. So would you say it's that difference between limerence and deep love? Ooh, I don't know the word limerence. Enlighten me, PR. Ooh, okay. So limerence is this idea of like when you're first in love with someone, that feeling that you get those tickles in your in your belly. Um, oh, I call and... that new relationship energy. Actually, I stole that. Right. From it's called, Dan it's like Savage. there's a technical term. Yeah. There's a technical Ooh. term for it. It's limerence. Okay. Um, and, and it's like, it's like a euphoria, right? There's actual uh, chemicals that release in your brain and you get a high off of it. Um, and you feel, you feel different. And love then grows into kind of like a deep love, which is, I think is what you're talking about, Jacob, where then you have that long connection. Well, you know, they've been together for three years, which. It's not the longest relationship, but in terms of living together and then deciding, hey, maybe we should go to Temptation Island to see if this works out. <laughs> I don't know. I think he is longing for that limerence, as you would say. And, yeah. and that type of connection seems to be what he's looking for more so than, you know, as it says in that little promo, marriage, kids, family life, etc. I would say probably signing up for that show creates like a real selection effect, right? Where you're probably getting yeah. a lot of people that are probably thinking in that direction. I don't know. Yeah, I would think so. I would think so. But like I said, uh, learning how to break up and ending relationships that aren't working is an important skill. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. And it's hard and that people's feelings get hurt and ending relationships is never easy. But learn how to do it so you don't have to go to Temptation Island. Exactly. I don't know if the producers of Temptation Island would appreciate that conclusion, but me, myself, and all of our listeners, I am sure they appreciate it greatly. <laughs> now we're going to move on to academic deep dive. 
Today we're going to focus on repartnering after divorce and talk about a recent paper published in the Journal of Demography titled Repartnering Following Gray Divorce, The Roles of Resources and Constraints for Women and Men. The study was done by Dr. Susan Brown at Bowling Green State University and her colleagues, Drs. Lim, Hammersmith, and Wright. As usual, the link to the article is available in the episode description, um, and we've also shared it on Twitter. So a little bit of background before Sarah takes us off. So in the 1990s, or in 1990 specifically, less than one in 10 people who got divorced were 50 years or older. So that's about, that's less than 10%. However, by 2010, one in four people, so about 25% of people who were getting divorced were 50 years or older. So this aging of, of the divorce population is referred to as gray divorce. And that rate, that gray divorce rate has doubled over the past 25 to 30 years. So this is a really rapid increase in the number of people who are experiencing gray divorce. So for people who divorce later in life, we know less about whether and why they repartner, especially since factors that predict repartnering for younger adults might not apply. For example, economic resources such as education, wealth, and financial stability predict the likelihood of partnering and repartnering, especially in the form of marriage for younger adults. However, research has suggested that economic factors may be less important uh, for partnering decisions later in life. These people may be retired or they're already financially stable, so it's not necessarily something that they are looking for. Another example includes health, which may be uniquely important for older adults. Prior research has found better self-rated health is associated with remarriage among older adults. So another factor playing into gray divorce is that we know among older adults there is an uneven sex ratio, meaning women live longer than men, so there are more women. So men often marry younger women. So repartnering pools for men and women shift in opposite directions after 50. The, the pool of eligibles, which is a term for the group of people who you, are, who you are able to partner with, shrinks for older women, as does their interest in repartnering, which naturally lowers their likelihood of uh, remarriage and cohabitating. However, Despite knowing a bit about what may be associated with re with repartnering um, among those who experience gray divorce, we still know very little about the specific determinants of remarriage versus cohabitating in later life, as well as the timing of the repartnering, so how long it takes to repartner. So the researchers of this specific article set out to examine this phenomena of uh, gray, the increase in, in gray divorce for men and women over the age of 50. So Sarah, can you tell our wonderful listeners about this research and what they found? Because this is fascinating. <laughs> I agree. Um, so as you just described, this um, team looks specifically to explore repartnering in the form of remarriage and cohabitation after um, these adults had experienced a divorce at the age of 50 or above. And they use data from the Health and Retirement Study beginning in 1998 through to 2014. So this is a nationally representative sample that at baseline in 1998 began with almost 34,000 adults over the age of 50. They interviewed those participants every other year and then they added a sample of early baby boomers in 2004 and then middle baby boomers in 2010 to continue to expand their sample and make sure it was representative. So in when these researchers looked at this collection of participants, a little over 26,000 were married. And then in their final sample, about 1,100 or more, a little more, had experienced gray divorce, um, 352 of whom had repartnered by 2014. So that's not a, that's not a very large percentage of people who have repartnered by 2014. It's not a huge uh, percentage, and it... it potentially could have affected right, their findings because it's not a very large number when they got down to it, but uh, it included a wide 
swath of people um, over the course of a lot of years who participated in this study. So their assertion is that this is the best data set in the US to test these questions about how repartnering happens for people who divorce at 50 or older. So they tracked marriages that formed and dissolved by each of the study's participants, as well as their cohabitation status over time. And because of prior research that suggests that repartnering typically occurs very soon after divorce, they only tracked each participant for 10 years after their divorce to assess for whether they repartnered and whether that was right. a cohabiting or remarried. Um, and also because of that lopsided sex ratio uh, that you described earlier, Patricia, they um, looked at these predictors of repartnering separately for men and for women. So that, oh, that okay. balance wouldn't affect the results. So first out the gate, they found that the probability of repartnering was lower for women than men, which is what they had expected. Women um, tend to show less of an interest in repartnering mm -hmm. based on gender dynamics in caregiving for their partners. Right. Um, as and one, that's also true for younger adults as well, that women are less likely to re remarry um, compared to men. Well, and as you talked about in terms of this Im gender imbalance, the sex ratio imbalance, right. there are fewer people for women interested in um, heterosexual relationships to be partnering with because the fewer men that exist are interested in marrying younger women. Younger women, right. Um, so they repartner at lower rates in this sample and they repartner at a slower pace than men. And in the first five years after a divorce, they found that women were more likely to cohabit than remarry, oh. um, whereas those who remarried had been in shorter marriages prior to divorce than those who cohabited or those who remained single. So people who, uh, women specifically who remarried, were in marriages around an average of 17 and a half years, whereas those who went and cohabited next were, had been married for um, significantly longer. Men, oh, that's fascinating. So women who yeah. are married shorter period of time are more likely to try out marriage again, but right. women who are married for a very long period of time, they're like, well, why don't we just, yeah. <laughs> just cohabitate instead? We'll cohabitate or we'll, I'll just do this thing. So, I'm good, I'm good. I'm good. I've done this before, I'm, I'm out. Um, <laughs> I did all that energy, this is about me now. Um, men on the uh, flip side were more likely to remarry than cohabit, and this difference increased with time. Um, although the transition into remarriage took a little bit longer than those who moved into cohabiting. And unlike women, the duration of the marriage prior to divorce wasn't related to repartnering oh. for men. So the characteristics of these prior marriages affected men a little bit less than women. They also, among all of these different, as the title suggests, resources and constraints, all these different possible predictors of repartnering, they didn't find very many significant associations. So can and you they, talk to me just real quick, sorry, about what yeah. you mean by resources and constraints? So as you talked about um, in terms of the what we know from the prior literature, right. you talked about like economic resources, like education, mm -hmm wealth, home ownership status, those are factors that are predictive of partnering and repartnering for younger adults. So those were considered to be resources because they're promoting of marriage. The more okay. for younger adults, the more um, financially secure I am and the more financial stability I have, these different markers of wealth, more education I have, more likely I am to get married and to get remarried. Whereas people who cohabit tend to be less um, economically stable. So those are things that they described as, as resources and as well as social support. So whether I had friends and relatives close by and whether my, I was relatively healthy, for example, and then constraints were related to other ways to think about age and these details about how they had partnered before their, what they called their marital biographies. Resources are factors that are linked to increasing the likelihood of repartnering, where constraints yeah. are factors linked to decreasing the likelihood yes. of repartnering. I see. Okay. Right. So um, as one measure of health, for example, that they did find that was a significant predictor was the number of difficulties in maintaining activities of daily living. So being able to be mobile, to be able to bathe, to be able to walk around the block, mm. to be able to get groceries, those kinds of things were significantly less for women and for men who repartnered. So it's one indicator that maybe people who were healthier were more likely to repartner. And men who remarried or cohabited after divorce had fewer chronic conditions than men who stayed single. And they found that men who cohabited were also less likely to report having friends or relatives living nearby than those who remarried or who stayed single. So 
potentially one indicator that uh, social ties, more social ties that are nearby might be promoting of repartnering for men specifically. But as I suggested earlier, the authors found very few other significant associations. Wealth and economic resources had little to do with repartnering for men or for women. Right. Um, and there were few significant associations um, with other measures of health or other types of social relationships for men or women. So it was mostly about these details about how they had been married before, how long they'd been married before, how long it had been since their divorce that was most strongly tied to whether they remarried, whether they cohabited, or whether they stayed single. Yeah. And not even necessarily, because this study doesn't do it, it's not even necessarily the satisfaction with their past marriage. No. It really is the duration of that past relationship. And I'm, I'm not sure whether the health and retirement study would have captured the quality of a prior relationship because some of these people could have been divorced very close to baseline, right? Right. Um, but it's, no, it's the specific details about the length of time, right. age, since divorce, et cetera. So there's some indication, the author suggests, that maybe there's a similarity between cohabitation and remarriage that are, for older adults, potentially seen as more interchangeable. So um, especially for baby boomers and those who are approaching 50 and older more recently, that cohabitation is less stigmatized now in our culture. And so if I, um, it matters less that I'm going to need to solidify my financial resources or if I'm older and not going to have additional children, et cetera, there, and there's less stigma, it might not right be so challenging for me to think about living with a partner versus marrying them if I'm older. Right, especially if, is, if you're thinking people in their, their 50s, like you're saying, cohabitating hating, or these alternative, or these alternative forms alternative of form. committed romantic relationships are a lot less stigmatized than it was when they were originally married. Right, right. And really important difference than for younger adults, right? So these right. authors set out to to learn more about repartnering after divorce for people who have experienced gray divorce, which it looks that that's a really different outcome than what you would find if you studied younger adults who have separated right. and then are, are looking to repartner. The uh, bar is a lot higher for younger adults considering entering marriage is one way to say that. So I think there's some interesting, I mean, I think there's some interesting take homes, uh, just baseline that partnering after divorce potentially looks different for older adults than younger adults. Um, but I think if you're, if you're 50 and older and either facing divorce or have experienced divorce at that age, I think one takeaway that I felt while reading it was that you may have more autonomy in deciding whether and how to partner again right. after divorce. Um, there were not very many significant associations, meaning some of these things are not in a person's control. My relative wealth status, my number of chronic conditions, my whether family lived nearby, some of these things might not be under my control. Right. And if it's not predicting whether or not I repartner, I don't know that it's a sign of autonomy, but that was a takeaway that I thought that, that there just might be more choice and fewer constraints around how I belong to a couple, how I choose whether or not to partner when I'm older. Um, yeah, and it was um, based on that, it's also fascinating that if you think back to our, our original stating that the demographics of the percentage or the amount of people who actually choose to repartner, it is quite small compared to the people who, who divorce and stay single for that period of time. So. Yeah. It, there is a lot more choice and you don't necessarily have to repartner, but if you choose to, that also can look yeah. a lot of different ways, which is kind yeah. of exciting. Well, in some of these, I mean, this doesn't capture people who are just dating or who right. are living apart, but consider themselves to be very much together. There are right. other forms of relationships that these two different kinds of relationship statuses does not include, right? So that for older adults, there just could be more diversity in partnering and that could be potentially more exciting and more in your control. Um, yeah. And I think another, the second takeaway I felt was that if you have a friend or a family member who's experienced gray divorce, that to limit how much you're judging their repartnering process mm. by what we've come to understand as normal form of repartnering right. based on what we know about younger adults. Meaning I think my, I mean, my parents, for example, are baby boomers and they've had friends and family members 
go through divorce over the last several years that I think some of those have been really surprising for them. And then kind of watching how these people that they know and are close to repartner, it's, it's like, it's confusing if all of the norms that we have are judged by people who are 30 right. and get divorced. We don't really know what this looks like necessarily for people who are older and have more autonomy. And if they're discovering it, then you're discovering it too. And to not, to kind of be open-minded about what that process could look like for them. Exactly. And if you know someone who is experiencing a great divorce, we have a really great podcast to give them. It's called Attach. (laughs) (laughs) Nice job. My my thoughts from reading this were a couple of things. Some related to the research research, but some kind of sparked some other ideas kind of similarly related. Because, you know, I think sometimes we look at divorce as the relationship failed, mm. right? That divorce, you know, and, but if you look at some, like the average age, I don't know if this is about right, but for these people who are getting divorced are almost like 20, 20 plus years. And if you think about it, the history of the institution of marriage, uh, when people first started getting married for love, which only happened relatively recently. Yeah, like 150 years ago, maybe. Wasn't, wasn't what it was for boomers, right? Boomers who were getting married probably, you know, if we think about the baby boom age, they got married younger than people are doing now. Right. They're together for a long time. And being with someone for 25 years and then having to end a divorce, a lot of people say like, oh, that's so sad. And sure, it was probably hard to decide to end that marriage. But I don't think that that relationship necessarily should be looked on, upon as a failure by any means. Because Esther Perel, and I'm sure we've said this on the podcast before, who we talk about, always says, hey, throughout the course of your life, you're going to be married to two or three people. You just have to decide if that's with the same person or with multiple people, right? Because people grow and change. change. And I also think, too, that uh, I really appreciate the authors taking time to look at this um, at, at more of a baby boomer population, mm-hmm. because I think sometimes, as Sarah, you were talking about, we don't have a roadmap for what, right. you know, what love looks like, you know, partnering looks like for people in their 50s and 60s, right? Right, Especially those who have experienced great divorce. And so starting to explore and build that research, I think is really important. If life expectancy continues, you right. know, there's probably going to be a higher percentage of divorce in older age yeah, um, because people, for a variety of reasons, and it's good for people to be able to leave those marriages if and when they need to, but also have a roadmap to build healthy, successful relationships in in older adulthood. In 50 years, we're gonna be doing research on the super gray divorce, which is 80-year-olds repartnering. (laughs) And what we're gonna find is that it is just all about sex. (laughs) Just a free-for-all. just a free-for-all a non-judgmental free-for-all exactly no exactly like and i think too that it's just um yeah i just i thought this was really interesting to 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 think about this and i'm glad the authors took the time and don't judge your boomer friends parents relatives by your standards i love it Woohoo! boo Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice about friends, families, and romantic partners. Did your parents or grandparents have a saying about love and marriage? Did you read somewhere on the interwebs about what to do or not to do in a relationship? Did you have a friend or romantic partner who said something about love or family that you thought was odd or maybe it struck you as poignant? This is the section of the show where we talk about that advice and decide if it was good or bad. As always, if you have heard or read some advice that you want us to talk about it, please send it to us. You can leave us a message at 865-229-6775. Email us at attachpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us at Attached Podcast, or you can visit our brand new Facebook page, Attached Podcast, or you can visit our website, attachedpodcast.com. We're everywhere. Also, <laughs> believe it or not, we're on Instagram, Attached Podcast. Listen, any any place you want us, we're there. 
Um, we anywhere you want. <laughs> that's the way you need. Anywhere you want. Yeah, um, got a little bit of a Glee flashback, and that's perfectly fine with me. I've still on my deep Jonathan Groff deep dive, so I'm I'm perfectly content with that. Anyway, uh, did you watch Frozen too? Did I? Is that watch, part of your deep dive? Did I watch Frozen too? The question yes, is, why haven't you watched Frozen too, Jake? <laughs> Because I don't have a six-year-old daughter. Yes, <laughs> I feel like it's really could bring a lot to this pop culture segment that you're doing. We can get off Temptation Island. I do think that we need to do a thing about relationships in Frozen 2 because there were some amazing yes. moments. Some um, no amazing spoilers lines. yet. I got to go see it still. All right. <laughs> you better get a six-year-old Next daughter episode, then. <laughs> we better have a Frozen yeah, segment. Right. All right. Alas, we digress. Please also rate and subscribe our podcast. You know, give us those sweet, sweet five stars. We love it. So today we're going to talk about um, some advice. So last week we talked about a celebrity, so I thought, why not follow suit? Uh, A quote from Will Smith about relationships. Her happiness is not my responsibility. She should be happy, and I should be happy as an individual. Then we come together and share our happiness. Giving someone a responsibility to make you happy when you can't do it yourself is selfish. Good or bad advice? I say bad advice. Ooh. And do you want to know why I say bad advice? Please. Because of the use of his word happiness. I know he had a movie called The Pursuit of Happiness. But I think that if he replaced a couple of words here, this could be good advice, right? Her emotional experience is not my responsibility. She should have her own emotional experience and I should have my own emotional experience. Then we should come together and share our emotional experience. Giving someone a responsibility over your own emotional experience, you can't do that, right? But he also needs to add in, but my role is to provide support for those emotional experiences, right? I agree that you're not responsible for somebody's happiness, but I don't think the expectation of that your partner should be happy and you should be happy and then you should come together and be happy is realistic. We want our partners to be there for us when we're sad, when we're angry, when we're frustrated, when we're hurt, when we're excited, Mm. as we talked about a couple of podcasts ago, as when we're... Um, sharing good news. Like, I think all of those things can be present, but you're not responsible for your partner's emotional experiences, but you want to be present for them and you want to be supportive of them and you want to try to understand them. So for me, this just seems very much focused on one emotional experience, which is happiness, which if you are focused only on happiness in your relationship and you have the expectation that your partner should just be independently happy, I think you're gonna be a little bit frustrated and disappointed. People should feel more, experience more than just happiness and reducing this down. And again, it's just one quote taken out of context. Right, of course. Will Smith, I will still get jiggy with you. You are still my fresh prince. Oh, wow. (laughs) Those are too good getting jiggy. (laughs) So, All I'm saying is the pursuit of happiness is not the goal here. Mutual support, not taking responsibility for somebody else's emotional experience, but trying to understand and support that in a mutual reciprocal way is the key. I just would like to know if you make your students that uncomfortable (laughs) with these references. (laughs) (laughs) Really, I just really have this image of you teaching in an old man sweater and... Um, <laughs> I just really would like to see more of that. Hey, kids, get jiggy with it. No, 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 no. No, 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 getting jiggy with it. Hey, you guys want to do the Macarena? <laughs> so uncomfortable. <laughs> um, I'm just going to transition. I also think this is bad advice. Um... I don't think it's awful in like in totality. I'm so sorry to disappoint you. Are you saying you're a five? No, I think it's bad advice. I'm just reacted to your gasp. I felt bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, the piece about like giving someone else the responsibility to make you happy is good advice. 
that uh, okay. rather that he's saying it's problematic. I agree that that is not is not necessarily solely somebody else's responsibility, meaning that shouldn't be my intention in a relationship. Though sometimes I think that that is necessary for people maybe who have depression, anxiety, some kind of yeah. grief, recent loss. Like sometimes your partner or your family member or friend might be the person who's helping you limp through that. And um, that's good. I, yeah. I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. Um, but I think I connect this. I, I don't know if my idea is entirely different than Jacob's, but there's this um, pretty uh, popular colloquial phrase that sounds very like psych oriented um uh, that you're not responsible for other people's emotions and that's what this intersects with for me this sounds like a version of you're not responsible for other people's emotions they're not responsible for yours like they're right that other people's other people are responsible for their emotions you can't go around just taking care of everybody i really hate that phrase i really hate that popular phrase because i think that that totally ignores the fact that um, we are responsible for how we treat other people and how we make them feel. Like, I'd, it just is always a phrase that strikes me as giving permission for people to just be let off the hook that, like, I can treat you however I want. My actions right. are technically my responsibilities, but how you react to them is, like, totally not my fault. I'm not responsible for how you feel. And I really hate it. Um, I think it's this weird misapplication of some idea about, like, self-care and that um, right. it's okay. Self-regulation. If, right. Or that, like, being okay with people being angry or upset or sad, that, those are things that we need to be okay with, even if they're uncomfortable, so that we don't rob people of their emotional experiences, which is, I think, similar to maybe what Jacob's saying. But I really don't like that phrase of, like, we're not responsible for how other people feel because we are responsible for how other people feel. That's the whole point of relationships. We have we carry responsibility for how we make them feel when they're around us not entirely and also my actions should align with how i would want to treat somebody um and that's why i think it's bad advice okay hate to break it to you will but the i don't even feel attached folks i'm not looking to use any 90s catchphrases here i just think (laughs) it's bad advice you're not gonna say Benvenito, ami, ami. I never would have even considered it. Didn't come up for me at all. Jacob, have you been googling Will Smith yeah. songs? No, I can. I was pulling those out of my brain. <laughs> from my brain, you don't even need a PhD to do that. That's just bonus. I can go from to the, my brain. Wah, wah, Wes. Oh, wah, wah, Wes. oh, God! <laughs> Ow, that that one actually hurt. Oh, oh. yuck. <laughs> You're responsible for how I feel right now, and I feel nauseous. <laughs> Cringing. So the next piece of advice came from recently from AP News, Associated Press, called On Thanksgiving Menu, Turkey with a Side of Impeachment. Oh, so clever. Um, so basically, the headline of this article was, well, the the, the line on, on Twitter was that at your Thanksgiving dinner, politics are going to come up. And what you should do to fix that is pick a family member that's a moderator between family members. You guys can't see it, but right now uh, Jacob and Woods are shaking their heads. So let me um, dive in. It was an etiquette coach who said this. Her name is Elaine Swan. Advises hosts of Thanksgiving to have a plan to deal with polarizing discussion amid all this talk about impeachment in the air, along with the aromas of oyster dressing and freshly baked pumpkin pies, just to get an image in there for you real good. What is oyster dressing? It is a type of stuffing. I know, because I'm a (laughs) stuffing expert. Um, They put oysters in it. Okay. That felt like a real setup, didn't it? Like he was just trying to bring it back to the start. <laughs> no, I really Do you want me to talk more to... about stuffing? <laughs> no? Now oh, sorry. You, now you're making me uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> anyway, she goes on to say, I do think it's healthy for people to express themselves and to have those conversations. My advice is to take a route to allow some sort of platform, but with guidelines. Thus far, I don't hate it. Okay. One tactic, sequester the debate. She'll have a room away from the dining table stocked with snacks for people to 
people who want to talk politics. So they go into that room. She also suggests designating a calm family member as a combination moderator slash peacekeeper. So another person they interviewed is a former judge and said the role off that role of moderator often falls to him, although he wouldn't mind taking a break from politics for that day. No shit. My preference would be to not have the conversation on Thanksgiving, he said. This is the judge. I'd rather watch football and leave politics behind. So the article goes on and on, and Swan also suggests some suggestions to deal with politics on Thanksgiving. Have family games. Recommend everyone bring a picture so they can talk or reminisce about that picture. Or also you can just talk about sports. So I'm wondering, I know Thanksgiving has passed, but we know conversations will come up again. And I'm wondering broadly what you guys think about Miss Swan's um, advice and whether it's good or bad. I'm going to say bad advice again on this one. In particular, this idea of having a calm family member be a moderator slash peacekeeper. Can you imagine? Like when I heard that, my anxiety went up because I would be that person. My anxiety immediately went up and go, oh shit, my Thanksgiving's going to be ruined because I have to be a damn moderator for my entire family. Cool, 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 cool. Like if you, I'm sure if you want to have this room where people want to talk politics and can go hang out, but if they're going to have that discussion. Make sure they're, in my family, make sure there are no breakable items in that room. (laughs) Well, yeah, like if you're going to have a discussion that's going to like bring up that much hostility that you need a moderator, then you've got to like check your motivations for why you're having this discussion, Mm. right? I understand that politics can be heated and it has real life consequences. But like if you're using Thanksgiving Day to to, like go sequester yourself in a room with your uncles and cousins who you don't talk to very much. Just uncles. And then yell at them. Just uncles in that room. Just, just uncles, uncles and cousins. And creepy. <laughs> just uncles. And goldfish crackers. I and, gold, and goldfish. I love goldfish crackers. But uh, like if you're going to do that, like what is your motivation for that? Like if, if it's going to be to the case where you have to designate a calm peacekeeper – that I don't think your motivation is really to listen and understand and have a debate about politics. It's really just about to argue and get mad at people. So I think that if you're going to do that, do these conversations one-on-one. I don't think it's smart to have a group discussion about intense topics. If you're gonna, if you really wanna talk to somebody about political issues, impeachment, say, hey, you and me, let's go have this discussion. And I really want to know what you have to say and I want to hear and I want to think about it. And I really want you to listen to me too. But if you're just like getting in a room so we can all gang up on the yeah. the Democrat or the Republican of the family to try to ostracize them or make them you're feel yelling, bad. yelling, calling names. Yeah, like what? what is this? What is no, this? No, I think that – and I kind of do like the idea, you know what, on holidays it can be a time to build positive relationships and maybe then when you have that base established where you have this close connection, you can approach a more difficult conversation with somebody on a different day. But why not use the holidays to build that connection and then use some other time to go and have those more intense mm, conversations? That feels that feels nice. Use the holidays to build connections, not to fight. Yeah, and then fight on a different day. Like, <laughs> The day after Thanksgiving, why not, with some pizza? What, Sarah? Yeah, it's bad advice. Also, what's an etiquette coach? I mean, (laughs) this is an etiquette coach, which I think is an invented title, good for her, giving advice about how to be a family therapist to people who are entirely untrained and a holiday that's supposed to be about togetherness and gratitude dividing off into other rooms to have polarizing conversations for which the person who would be moderating is as untrained as an etiquette coach. So I think it's bad advice. I love those. That that was the perfect encapsulation of everything that could ever be said. That quote just needs to go on your tombstone, Sarah Woods. I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with that i'm not i'm not uncomfortable with it it. like your will smith references um it reminds me of the atlantic did a piece very very recently about a group called better angels i don't know if y'all have heard of that before 
Um, yeah. It's led by Bill Doherty, who's a family therapist out of University of Minnesota. Yes. And it is, the purpose is to like host debates in the face of all of this political polarization where they bring together um, liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats into the same room to not to convince each other of their the, the right or wrong of their different beliefs, but to be able to listen to each other. And they have professional moderators that do this. And my understanding is that these people are trained in group facilitation. They have to be comfortable right. with that group process piece. They have a very specific structure for these kinds of debates. They have to do training, like hours of videos and um, workshops and specific kinds of training to then become a trained moderator of these kinds of things. This isn't something to just be suggesting to your most neutral, least capable family member to take on. And right. And you also think the most, quote, calm family member is going to jump into a middle of a fight? Right. They're probably calm because they don't put up with shit like that. And they're like, um, I'm not getting into a middle of a fight. Like, what? Or they're, well, already, also, or they're already doing all the emotional labor in your family. And then how dare you? Yes. Right. That would be my assumption, too, is that the person that you're going to choose is the person who already plays that role and it already stresses them out to do it. And that's the, the person that you're asking, OK, thanks. You're good at this because you've been doing it all of your life yeah. because we've been training you to do it all your life. Can you also do more yeah, of it? Use your vacation time for that. <laughs> <laughs> this calm, this other room where this calm person is intervened, if like the thing that's great about Better Angels is it's a person who's not a relative, right? If you're arguing right. with a relative about politics, you probably also have some other emotional grievances that are going to get tied into yeah. that, and it's not going to go well. You know what right. they should use that room for? I don't know if y'all ever watched The Office. There is an episode where Michael takes the women out of the office and the men discover the women's restroom. That's what you should be using that room for. <laughs> if it's already sequestered and like really dark and quiet and full of snacks, you should just go in there and be relaxing and enjoying each other's company and not tell the that. other people who didn't brave coming in there that there's like a raucous game night happening that's what she is. maybe also splurge a little bit and you know maybe pay for a, a massage therapist to come in there in that relaxing room that's, i'm really liking this room all of a sudden that's good advice i judge that, that. Is good, good advice, advice. <laughs> well that does it for us another episode down the hatch <laughs> down the all about so food here to mix it up all about food here to touch <laughs> But seriously, thanks for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, tweet us, slip into our DMs, whatever. Unless you're an etiquette coach, we're going to get added by like all the etiquette coaches on Twitter now. Do it. Do etiquette, it. Etiquette. I'm ready. Okay, Woods is ready. Um, we're going to get dragged by etiquette coach Twitter. Doesn't feel like a real, uh, it doesn't feel like a real etiquette thing to do to drag people on Twitter. <laughs> so I feel like, come at me. Proof my point. I'm ready. <laughs> Let's just be real passive aggressive about it. It'll be fine. Sure. Anyway, get at us. With any relationship advice you'd love us to talk about, we would be super excited to do it. Talk to you next episode. So